Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Come on, get a boy jumping there. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash, all right? Cash, no. Robo? No cash. I swear to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Walk Walk. Hello and welcome to The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this episode, I'm looking at another film from the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, and that is The Gateway Bug, documentary about eating bugs. It's directed by Joanna Kelly, produced by Cameron Marshard, and it's a really fascinating documentary that, that I found really entertaining and enjoyable and gave us a great look into the possible future of the food that we eat. It also is a great documentary that looks into how the food that we eat is created and the impact that that food that is created has on the world that we live. Uh, It has some really, really interesting uh, facts to bring up about the way that we consume food and how it impacts our world and so forth. Uh, So I do highly recommend seeking out because it's not only interesting and will actually make you want to eat a bug, um, it's really informative. So I was able to chat Uh, with Joanna and Cameron about their film and we're going to listen to that chat after the trailer. Be back in a moment. Growing food requires a lot of resources. Water, land, energy, fertilizer, tractors. And if we do this in a way that's exhausted, we're not going to be able to produce the food that we need to survive. 80% of the water in the West goes to agriculture, 90% globally. So if we want to use less water, let's address it there. The biggest part of the food print of meat is farming the feed for the actual animal. Sustainable food production is extremely important because it's something that we cannot live without. When we look historically at, at humans before we were farming and when we were foraging, we were all eating insects. When you talk about the health benefits of insects, it's sort of like saying, what are the health benefits of plants? There's so much room for exploration. My name is Sonny Ramaswamy, and I'm the director of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. I'm going to make guacamole that has toasted mealworms in it. Mm. That's good. In the Western world, we've got a bit of a yuck factor associated with insects. And so there needs to be a significant step taken by the potential consumers to say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and eat insects. Cooked the right way by someone who knows what they're doing tastes like the best sort of crab or shrimp you've ever had in your life. To me, the magic of bugs is how quickly they raise. This is Big Cricket Farms, the first urban farm in the U.S. devoted exclusively to raising food-grade crickets. This farm at max capacity can raise about 6,000 pounds per month, but our demand is 10, 20 times higher than that. Have you eaten bugs before? You look ready. Last year in the United States, there was over 36 million tons of food scraps sent to landfill, which is absurd given 
the amount of people that are hungry in this country as well as the world. We can feed that to insects and directly reconstitute it into the food system. When I started my television show, there were no American companies processing crickets or grasshoppers for flour. I see crickets as kind of the gateway bug. We talk about them as the gateway bug. The gateway. Crickets, for better or worse, they became the gateway bug. So yeah, welcome back everybody. And I'm joined by the directors of a really interesting film. It's a documentary about eating bugs called The Gateway Drug, or Gateway Bug, essentially, which uh, is nice, uh, as I just mixed up there, nice uh, turn of the, the words there. So welcome, guys. Thanks very much for joining me here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Um, so this is, yeah, as I was saying, it's an interesting idea, an interesting concept. Where did you come up with the, the, the idea of doing a documentary about eating bugs? So it really was, uh, it stemmed from uh, a meeting that we had with my good college friend out in California. Uh, we met up with him for brunch uh, as like a catch up. I haven't seen him in years. And he started describing to us his thesis project. And uh, for his thesis at University of California, Santa Barbara, he was tasked with uh, developing a business concept that solves an ecological problem. And the ecological problem that he was interested in was reducing the number of wild fish uh, we were removing from the oceans. So really the overfishing problem we have, because he's a marine biologist, so mm -hmm. that's his background and interest. Right. So he saw that we're removing a huge number of sardines and anchovies, which are really important feeder fish for the whole of the uh, ecosystem in the oceans. And we're, we were using, we are still using them for animal feed and for human consumption, but mostly for animal feed. And uh, so he decided to, you know, investigate this. And, you know, it was a big question. Why are we removing so many wild fish? Why, you know, the whole point of, Farmed fish. farmed fish, for example, is to reduce the number of wild fish. So it really uh, perplexed him to see that a huge number of wild fish were being used for uh, farmed fish feed. So he and it's not even just farmed fish feed. Those farmed fish are going into your dog food. They're going into chicken feed. It's really being used everywhere. So you know, do, this wild fishing isn't really getting any uh, much of a break from farmed fishing anyway. Ultimately. Right. Mm. So he decides to look into alternative proteins to sardines and anchovies. And, uh, you know, he went back and looked at his uh, trout farming days back in high school. He had a he had like an internship in high school and he recalled that he went fly fishing one day and it kind of struck him like, wait, why are we using a fly? Like, obviously, these fish are jumping out of the water. They're interested in flies. So they're really interested in bugs and insects. So he decided to uh, develop a concept where he saw crickets being raised on food waste uh, to feed to farmed fish as opposed to the feeder fish like sardines and anchovies. So that saw a huge reduction in resource usage and a huge reduction in, in pulling uh, wild fish out of the oceans. And he told us about this, and it really struck us, and it was really a logical thing that we kind of missed. And he simultaneously sort of told us about the intense negative impacts industrialized agriculture is having on planet Earth. So it's not just the overfishing that's a problem. You know, it's the farming of the wheat, 
that we're using to feed to cows and there are all sorts of other really major problems that are really resource intensive water intensive taking up a lot of land you know 90 percent of the amazon forest deforestation destruction is caused because of industrialized agriculture 80 percent of fresh water on earth is going to industrialized agriculture so it's really about it if we're having you know global warming and a lot of climate change and environmental problems it's about looking at where those problems are stemming from to start addressing the solution so basically once we heard all of like what his you know small part in this place was we were so fascinated and by the end of the brunch we were just like wow like we had no idea about all of this and we consider ourselves pretty interested in ecological advancement and the the survival of humanity and we wanted to share what we'd learned and we pretty much took it from there by the end of brunch we decided to make a documentary and Tyler had agreed to be in it he put us in touch with people we started researching other people we found people just really interested in our story so really willing to offer up an hour or two of their time to be interviewed and yeah a year later we started editing basically did he – I have to ask as well because obviously part of the uh, the documentary, somebody uh, kind of tricks their friend into eating bugs without them knowing. Like they make this really good-looking pasta dish with which is made up of, of bugs and stuff. Did he <laughs> kind of trick you guys into eating bugs at that stage or had you already tried bugs before that that – that brunch <laughs> no he he didn't trick us into it and, uh, and he was more so his pitch to us was like the feed side of things but he also did you know intrigue us by telling us about how people were starting to make protein bars and, and that kind of thing so he wasn't so much into the human consumption side of things but when he started telling us about it i actually went online we got back to new york i went online and did a little bit of my own research and I found uh, a cricket uh, provider who provides, uh, you know, frozen crickets. And I bought a pound of frozen crickets and I started uh, cooking with them. And that was really my first foray into uh, in, into entomophagy. And I, I did it kind of on my own. No one else uh, introduced it to me. I like to cook a lot. So I figured, you know, it's kind of like shrimp or something. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that was my first my first experience. And Joanna, what about yourself? When was your first experience with uh, well, eating bugs? <laughs> my first experience was uh, when we were talking with Tyler. We were in a cafe and he heard me tell the waiter that I have a shellfish allergy. It's anaphylactic, so I've actually had anaphylaxis twice. I have seen the light and been saved. So um, unfortunately, people who have those allergies are not able to eat insects. Insects are pretty much like land shrimp. They have all the same um, chitin and all the same sorts of proteins. So people who are allergic to shellfish can't eat them. So luckily at that point before there was any risk of me trying them, he was like, oh, you won't be able to eat them. That's really interesting. I had no idea about that. I mean, obviously I knew about shellfish, but I didn't recognize that um, that you know, bugs are essentially, as you're saying, land shrimp in a way. So I didn't realize that there would be that, that same connection with the, the allergies. That's fascinating. It, yeah. It's really fascinating because it comes back to this thing that we like to talk about a lot, which is addressing our conception of food. There's these cool stories over here uh, in America about Maine lobster, which is considered an extreme delicacy and very, very highly valued over here. 
from the east coast of America. And back in, I think it was 1914 or so. No, it was earlier than um, that. It was like the 16, 17, okay. 1800s. But um, basically, shellfish was considered a lower class food. They fed it to prisoners. People fed it to their servants in their house. And there were laws made that you weren't allowed to serve lobster to your servants more than twice a week. <laughs> so we've really seen a huge shift in how we view shellfish in America and, and in the West. And it's could, the same can be said for things like sushi. And I find it really fascinating watching how attitudes change to food. Obviously, with industrialized agriculture has come a, a huge shift in how we approach what we eat, how we get what we eat, how we make what we eat, and how we experience those foods. And so to think of insects, which so many people are so repulsed by and so disgusted by, and honestly, like the vast majority of people when we introduce this topic to them are really disgusted and they're like, well, that's ridiculous. No one's ever going to eat them. And then our experience on the film festival circuit over here is people come to our film, you know, with these kinds of attitudes, of course, because it's the prevailing Western attitude. And by the end of the film, they put their hands up and they're like, hi, you were handing out bugs at the beginning of the film and I didn't want to eat it. I'm ready to try it now. So it's it's just really fun to watch people's attitudes change within the space of 90 minutes on something that's so deeply ingrained in our culture. It Food really is a cultural, cultural thing. Well, I mean, one of the people that you've got that you interview in the the film is Andrew Zimmern, who, I mean, I'm a huge fan of bizarre foods, and and certainly for me, watching him eat all manner of different things around the world has certainly encouraged me to try out uh, different things. Um, so I imagine having somebody like him, who many people would be familiar with, would also help out with the fact that hey, you know. This guy really enjoys it, and so therefore, there's nothing majorly wrong with it at all. Um, you know, for my experience, uh, eating bugs uh, was in uh, Thailand. Tasted fantastic. Was really delicious. And it is a question which I've always wondered: why we haven't sort of explored that uh, a bit more? Um, you know, in, in Western eating, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the questions you guys raise in the documentary is about the the attractiveness of the food and it having to be, you know, people don't want to see a, a cricket when they eat it because it's ugly. Um, so It's not even just crickets. Like, people don't like seeing pigs' heads. People, when they order fish in, in the greatest amount, will never order a whole fish to their table, but they'll order a fish fillet. So it's really more about this Western idea of not wanting to identify that the thing they're eating is an animal, but wanting to enjoy the benefits of the proteins and the vitamins and the flavors that animal meats do offer i find that really interesting too it's not just because we find crickets gross i don't think or or insects gross in general it's because we don't like seeing eyeballs and that kind of thing on our food Mm. yeah and and we're i mean there's a a separate trend uh where we're seeing you know a Go, everyone in a, a huge number of people in the New York area, for example, are you know trying to be more in touch with where their food comes from. The Hudson Valley is you know a really great place to go up to and and go to a piggery or a, or a duck farm and and see where your pig or where where your pork or your 
duck meat is coming from. But There's quite a funny Portlandia skit where they want to know exactly where their chickens come from. Yeah, so I think there are there's a small group of people who, are, and, you know, in on social media you see this going on in certain circles, but uh, the vast majority of, of Americans, I can tell you, are really not inter- interested in knowing that, and they're really just interested in, in the final product coming in patty form on their plate. And that's also one of the things our film really tackles and Andrew Zimmern talks a lot about is this, it's not just convenience eating, which he focuses on in the film. It's this idea of, you know, presentation and disassociation. Like, it's not even just meats that we like our food in different forms. You know, people don't want to eat raw vegetables. They want to eat cooked vegetables. They don't want to eat the peel you know, there's this thing in Australia right now about ugly fruit and there's a petition to get Woolworths to stop rejecting ugly fruit and just potentially make another tub of apples that is the ugly apples and offer it at a lower price rather than disposing of it because food waste is a huge problem and that's something else we talk about in the film. Mm. But I think that it's this idea that of perfection and we've grown up in a time of plenty and sustainability really hasn't been anywhere near anybody's forefront of thinking about food. And only, as usual, as we approach the end of those boundless resources, do we start thinking like, wait a second, do I care if this this apple has a funny lump on it? That funny lump is part of the apple, you know. It's it's interesting. Like, it also goes goes along with that idea of head-to-tail eating, which is becoming quite popular. Too. Right, and that kind of goes along with the, you know, what I was talking about before with going up to the Hudson Valley and seeing where your pork is coming from. But as Joe said, you know, in this time of plenty, we're, we're seeing plenty in New York, and you are seeing plenty in Australia, and, you know, we actually went to Youngstown, Ohio, and a number of other places where they're not seeing plenty, and they live in food deserts, and it's it's really it's a really terrible thing to see um, you know people getting their food from gas stations and the lack of access. And I think just because I think food deserts, I hope, or uh, in my experience, are less common in Australia. Mm. A food desert is considered a place where you have to travel over a mile to obtain a fresh piece of fruit or vegetables. Wow. I think, in a, yeah, and in America that's shockingly common. And I think in Australia we forget how hard it is for some people to access food. I grew up in Melbourne, so obviously as an inner city kid and having places like Meredith in the countryside nearby and Dalesford and places where even if you're not in the city there is heaps of access to really beautiful produce – but in America, there are these towns like Youngstown, Ohio, as Cameron said, Detroit, Michigan. There are places where you can literally take an hour to drive to a grocery store. And so people don't have time to do that. You know, you're a working parent. You've got kids to pick up from school. You've got a job to do 40 hours a week. You've got a house to keep clean, washing to do. You don't have time to, on a Tuesday night, or pop down the street for an hour to get some groceries. So you're going to end up going to that gas station that's a few blocks away and that's what your kids are going to eat, that's what you're going to eat. And a lot of, you know, discussion surrounding diet in America tends to ignore this. It tends to ignore that accessibility is part of the biggest problem. People do know that that food is bad, but they don't really have a choice. 
Yeah, and I think that it's certainly one of the the main arguments, you know, that people neglect uh, to to recognise it within, you know, not so much the obesity discussion and stuff like that. But, you know, as you were saying, if they they simply can't get to the food, then they're simply not able to eat it. And, yeah, they want to eat healthy. They want to eat – they want to do the right thing, but it it makes it – it's growing harder and harder to be able to do exactly that. Um, Totally. And there's that film, that sugar film. I don't know if you've seen it. But it it talks about how it's also addictive. So once you're in the habit of eating fast food and burgers, that's the food you're craving and that's the food that becomes comfortable to you and that's the food that you want anyway. So irrespective of whether you were taught better or you are being told that that's not what you're supposed to be eating, if that's the closest thing to you, that's the cheapest thing to you, that's the easiest thing to eat and that's what your body is craving – you know, that's that's very, very, very compelling for you to go and eat that food then. Hmm. One of the things I find really interesting about your film is that it, it kind of, when you bring up uh, that sugar film and, and other films like End of the Line and Food Inc. and, of course, going all the way back to Super Size Me as well in, in some regards, hmm. it's shaping the... The, the way that that we eat food and the way that we look at the way that that food is produced and you know you you fantastically outline how food is is constructed in you know a, a great little montage during the film where it's it's the the great processes that go into creating that that beef patty is an mm-hmm. insane amount so did you look at when you were creating this film? Did you look at these other films and sort of say, "All right, this is the discussion that's out there about food uh, in cinema, at least. What can we add to this discussion in in a unique way?" Um, I don't think that we specifically looked at those. I think we're just so entrenched in that environment. We love documentaries. We love food. We love food documentaries, and like we were just watching one on wheat last night. So I think that we armed with all of this information. We did make our film under a certain understanding that a lot of people are aware of this information. We tried to keep the reason we included that montage you speak of and the reason we try to sort of have a quick 101 for people who might not be that familiar is because obviously we hope that people who aren't necessarily into food films would still be interested in our film. So we try to sort of across a broad spectrum and that can appeal to all age groups and levels of understanding on on how we are existing in this current food climate and foodscape of of you know processed food of ways of eating of styles of eating you know the food pyramid is something we all know but the food pyramid was created by corporate interests and when you start to look at where and why things are being created it really helps you understand sort of the motives and maybe their impurity and maybe like how and why we should start trying to look at things in a different way I think so it wasn't that we specifically referenced those but we did come to this film with a hope that people had some level of understanding of that while presenting information to people who may have no understanding of any of it. Yeah, it was really just meant to help support our hypothesis and yeah. in as succinct a way as possible. Now, you guys used Kickstarter to help create this film. How did that go? Yeah. Was that a, like 
did you did you seek out trying to get financing before going through Kickstarter? Or was it always the plan to go through Kickstarter? It was always the plan to go through Kickstarter. Uh, and you know, when we got to the point where we felt comfortable enough with the footage that we had, we were like, okay, we need to start editing, and we're going to need some budget for this to spend some time doing this and to do post production with color and sound and music, and and uh, we really you know, looked at Kickstarter as a, as a really viable, uh, route to go. Um, but we really were not prepared for how difficult and time consuming the, the campaign process would be. We spent a number of months, uh, researching, uh, best practices beforehand, uh, and developing the materials around it, developing a trailer, uh, developing all of the um, the verbiage around you know how we present our film and our project on the on the site, and then the actual campaign process was pretty tedious. It's uh, it's difficult asking friends and family for money, and you know we we reached our goal, uh, but just barely, and it was down to the last hour, literally. Um, and it no one prepares you for it. It's something that. Um, no matter how much research you do, it's still going to be stressful and um, coming down to the last moment. I think it's it's probably a little different for a company that sells a product because a film is not as tangible as something that you can receive in the mail and use. Um, so I think product companies have had a lot more success um, or easier success on Kickstarter. But so. essentially, essentially what we were doing is we we really wanted to maintain our journalistic integrity we knew the film that we wanted to make we knew that we wanted people's voices to be representing their stories we didn't want it influenced so a number of people might have been in, interested in, in investing in our film and we weren't interested in accepting their money because we we didn't want any chance for anybody to say, oh, well, this is why you have this opinion. You know what I mean? Mm. So we wanted it to be a, our story told with without any interests. Like we don't profit from any of these companies or in any way, shape or form uh, around these stories. And I think that was really important to us. So we did everything we possibly could ourselves. You know, Cameron and I just together would go to these shoots with our own equipment, you know, running our, on our own schedules. Um, a lot of the time Cameron did all of the technical work. He was DP, sound guy. I was director, you know, production designer. We, we took on a lot of hats to do this ourselves. And then when it came to the editing process, there comes a point when we're not colorists, we're not composers. There are jobs, certain jobs that just no matter how, talented you are most people do not have those skills to mm. to do those sorts of jobs animation is neither of us have, have those skills and so we realized like well we really do need a, a small chunk of money to help fund those departments and help fund those aspects of post-production so to us kickstarter was a really valuable tool in being able to get that done without having other people invest or have a stake in what we were trying to say. Um, and it's funny, we actually uh, got some more outside interest um, during the Kickstarter campaign. It, it was it was a useful marketing and press opportunity. Uh, some outside investors reached out to us. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to talk about how 
those things panned out. No, but, yeah. Yeah, but um, it, 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 did, it did prove to be a useful marketing and press opportunity. And we're really thrilled that that money did, in fact, cover our post-production and we did manage to finish the film as we had set out to because it's a, it's a big ask funding a feature film and we're very proud that we did it ourselves and with that Kickstarter. Well, yeah, a, and especially. Yeah, sorry, sorry. You. No, go. no, you go. You go. It's all right. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to finish off that point by saying, like, it's such a niche subject, and it's it was I, I felt it was really hard to get people as interested as we were, and so we were really leading the project ourselves, and you know, it was it was a really. Um, condensed uh, effort between the two of us. But oddly enough, since making the film, we've found huge amounts of interest and it's it's far less niche than we initially thought. Well, it's, a, it's an entertaining film and it's a, the way you, you've presented it is very interesting and exciting and, you know, it, it makes me curious about where the future of, of uh, you know, of eating bugs essentially will go and and I'm excited for the future as well and that's that's the key about these kinds of films is that it, it, you know it leaves me excited about what the possibilities are um, now this was your first uh, both sort of your first feature uh, documentary uh, Joanna you as a director and Cameron you as a producer was that like it was, how was that sort of embarking on a, a, a major feature film uh, together well, it was pretty interesting. So I'm a production designer by trade. I've done a bunch of feature films at being a production designer, which is obviously of narrative films. So that's really different from documentary, worlds apart, and really different from directing, really different from producing. We also co-wrote the film together. Um, and I loved it. I find it so empowering. I think filmmaking is just, we are, are so blessed. We thoroughly enjoy it. I think it's the funnest thing in the world to make movies. And it's just enlightening, you know. It's basically like I also love learning. I love going to school. I love university. And filmmaking is one of those industries where you never stop learning. So every film you learn so much that you're like, wow, I can't believe I didn't know this stuff. And then the next film you're like, how could I not know this? And you're basically constantly learning, which I find really fun. And so, yeah, I really love directing. It, it's funny because I never thought about being a director before, and I don't know why because having done it now, that's all I want to do, like <laughs> <laughs> throw, throw me a film. And producing is really satisfying too. You know, um, I think once you're a film producer, you're kind of just like a manager in general. Somebody told me that it's be like being a parent. You basically just have to be on top of everything at all times, anticipating everything at all times. You have to be prepared. It's like being a scout. Like you have to have all these all these things ready to go because filmmaking everything gets thrown at you at once. In so many of those interviews, we literally had one hour with that person, like with Andrew Zimmern we had driven because we had no budget all the way from New York to Minneapolis just wow. to interview him in the one day that he could do the interview and he showed up and we had one hour of his time. So there's a lot of pressure, you know, to make sure that nothing goes wrong. You have to, Cameron can attest to this because he was on the technical side, but like he had to have the lighting, he had to have the sound, he had to have the camera. You can't have forgotten to charge a battery in that sort of circumstance, <laughs> you know. 
So it's pretty high stakes, high pressure, but I think the reward is really high. Yeah, I think we're lucky to have come across a subject. You know, I'd like to say that the documentary subject found us. Uh, it's hard to like go out and say, hey, what do I want to make a documentary on? Um, so <laughs> I think I think uh, coming across this subject was was really great. And, um, and yeah, we're it, curious people. So we we heard this story and we just let our noses lead us. We don't like we we've watched a lot of people sort of say, oh, how did you come up with these ideas? And it's like, well, the beauty of it is we didn't. As Cameron said, it found us. So. Pete, we were just we were obviously researching and investigating to discover these things, but we never at any point felt like we were trying to create something. The film was always creating itself. Yeah, and I I find the process of going and traveling and meeting new people really really satisfying um, because that's you know that's a where a huge chunk of your 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 footage is going to be uh, coming from you know walking around Youngstown Ohio seeing how that city has changed um, going to Toronto and meeting different people and going to Washington DC and meeting people high up in the USDA you end up getting access to a lot of cool different places and meeting a lot of cool different people so I think that's specifically for documentary filmmaking, I think that's that's a really... Uh, and, and low-budget documentary filmmaking, it's really just you and your director and the car you're driving in and, you know, the story you think you're embarking on but eventually changes down the road a couple months later and especially in the edit. Um, I think that all, all of that uh, makes it such a satisfying endeavor, especially for our first uh, feature doc. And because so many, like so many films, our film totally came together in the edit. There are so many stories that aren't in there, so many characters we interviewed, people that we spent days with that just didn't make the cut. And Cameron and I spent a full year editing and plotting out our story points and our character arcs. And I like that's so fun in itself. Editing is writing the film, you know, you're... Mm you're creating the story that the audience is going to experience and that's really fun. So it's so exciting for us to hear that you found it exciting because first our sort of first cuts were quite depressing and we were like, whoa, we didn't want to make a depressing film. Like people don't need to feel more depressed about the hideous state of things. I think we feel most people are pretty aware of climate change and it is pretty depressing to watch the Great Barrier Reef die and forest become eliminated and animals become extinct um you know why are we making this film to try to enlighten and inspire people and so the edit had to shift and our storyline had to shift to make it that exciting film that you experienced Hmm. and i'm I'm glad that you included those elements of youngstown ohio and, and places like that because you know in perth western australia where i live I'm unaware of, of those kinds of situations occurring in America. Like I'm, I, I'm aware of uh, Flint, Michigan and the, the, the water crisis mm-hmm. that goes on there, but you know, out of, outside of those places, it, they just don't get reported. So by putting it into a film like this, it's great because it helps, helps not just people within America, but people outside of America understand that, Hey, this is a first world country and this kind of, of problem is occurring. So it's, you know, it's it's great. I'm, I'm, for that aspect, I'm thankful that you included it because it's it's really informative and educational for me, at least. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Like I, the same thing is in Australia. I remember reading an article on some of the housing estates in the Northern Territory that are, are just absolute slums and um, they sort of look like shanty towns in India. And I was like, what? In my country, like in Australia, we have this? And I think that these people's stories are underrepresented. I think that very few people stand to profit from this becoming knowledge. And I think it's a shame that we live in such a corporate interest culture where only the people with money are getting their stories told because, let's face it, everybody's story is pretty interesting. Most most people lead quite unique lives and I, I'm proud to represent other people's voices. I think it's a real shame other people's voices don't get heard more often. Hmm. So after this film... Like it's it's out in festivals and and around the world, which is great to see. And we'll be showing the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, which is fantastic. What's next for you both? Uh, do you have something in mind? Are you are you working on something at the moment? Yeah, we have a few uh, documentary ideas uh, that that are brewing that we can't really discuss because of the the nature of the, of the subject. Yeah. But we find it really fun just investigating, as you can probably tell from the Gateway Bug. We love just following our noses and following the story and un- discovering unknown things. And whenever we talk to people, like in private over coffee or whatever, like you can't tell anyone, but guess what we just found out today? Everybody's always like, that's amazing. You have to make a documentary. <laughs> so we're constantly sort of, we've got two two ideas right now that we're in research and development on and we're sort of developing. Um, I've also written a television show, which is more a comedic, um series so quite a quite a step away from the documentary and i'm also in the midst of writing a narrative feature and we both like working on other people's projects a lot too as i was saying like it's so fun to learn and practice the art of filmmaking and so we both really like collaborating with other people and having just spent the last almost three years two and a half years pretty much solely working together on this project we're really keen to get back to working with a bunch of other crew members as well it's really filmmaking is such a fun fun process and you know when you get to work with a bigger team that's really great because you have the opportunity to craft your skills so much more learning from people that are better than you at certain things is is really fun oh definitely um well i won't take up too much more of your time i've only got two more questions um First of all, the first question is for Cameron because you're the, the, the dedicated bug eater in the, the, the team here. Was there a favourite one that you, you had, like uh, cricket or cockroaches or anything like that, or a favourite sort of recipe that you had? Sure. So uh, at the Eating Insects Detroit conference that we visited in May of 2016, uh, there were some interesting things there, and there's one presenter there uh, in Viroflight. They are a producer of black soldier flies, and what they do is they take black soldier flies and they grind them up. Well, they feed them on food waste, which is interesting. Okay. They they eat anything. They they really truly eat any and everything. They're basically uh, garbage disposals. Yeah, and they're non pathogenic too. So if they're eating like pig guts they won't transfer on any of the bad stuff that exists in the in the pig gut so they really are a great protein and great fat source 
So in their process of processing the um, uh, black soldier flies down to a powder, what they get is this, um, they purge their fat. So they're really high in fat. And what they end up getting is this like really pure kind of curry butter type of fat product. And uh, some people were hovering around the EnviroFlight table uh, at the conference. And I captured it, and it's actually in the film. And uh, one of our lead guys, Dave Gracer, he sticks his pinky in the in the tube, and he takes a little uh, curry butter style fat on his finger, and he and he eats it. And when I saw him doing that, I really wanted to try that. So I think it's one of the weirdest things that we've come across, uh, but it's also pretty tasty, and I'm excited to try it more. Cameron literally still talks about the curry butter <laughs> one year later, and I I really haven't seen him. He's a very adventurous eater in general and loves talking about food, but he talked about this curry butter for months after. <laughs> and the funniest thing is that the EnviroFlight are not a food consumer product producer. Yeah, they're it's looking... technically not human grade. <laughs> <laughs> but they're looking into biofuel and other sorts of really fascinating things you can do with insects. So I just love that we were surrounded by food products and Cameron goes up to these people with no interest and he's like, this is the most delicious product here. <laughs> it was pretty funny to watch. Well, I hope that, you know, in their, in their aiming to create, you know, better fuel and stuff like that, that they do... Uh, put some interest in that as well so I can possibly try it down the line because uh, well, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, as you may have seen, if you remember from the movie, Zeke, one of their representatives, spoke really interestingly about how it's that fat is really high in lauric acid, mm-hmm. which is really healthy, and that they were actually looking into using it for things like pig f- feed, which would reduce um, illness. Right. Okay, right. Yeah, lauric acid is um, the one of the lipids you find in uh, coconut oil, and it's really it's a it's a very strong natural antibiotic. So they they're putting it in into pig feed, into shrimp feed to reduce uh, some of the bad bacteria in their guts that exist uh, naturally, and thereby reducing the necessity for so many antibiotics, which has obviously become a big problem in factory farming. Yeah. Wow. It's it's such a symbiotic nat- like thing that's that's been created. It's fascinating. Right. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as we wrap up, the last question I ask uh, guests when they come on is, is there a documentary that you re- would recommend people seek out that, that may not be familiar to many people? It doesn't have to be about food, of course. It can be about whatever you like. Um, I don't know if I'm speaking for both of us, but we adore Adam Curtis. He's a documentary filmmaker his films are mostly uh, available online, so you don't need to be signed up to any specific VOD subscription services. He is such a fascinating guy, really, really intelligent, really masterful filmmaker. And his most recent film is a film called Hypernormalization. But uh, we've been fans of him for years and years, and he basically, I would recommend starting at the beginning with The Century of Self, where the film discusses sort of the Sigmund Freud's development of um, the idea of oneself, which he then talks about sort of how that turned into PR and marketing, which is like so influential in our culture right now. 
But then he goes on to other films like Bitter Lake, and he's, which is a very political film and talks about how the worldwide politics has influenced various events to date until we get to hypernormalization, which sort of talks about how we've got Trump in power in America right now. And he, he works for the BBC. He has access to all of their archives. Uh, because the BBC shoot all over the world, and until recent digital times, that's been real film housed in real buildings. He used to travel to buildings in cities all over the world and watch all of their archival footage. Wow. When you're, yeah, it's amazing. He's basically living my dream. <laughs> but when you, um, when you watch the news and you see some footage of a war or see some footage of something going down in a city that seems really far away... What you're seeing is usually three seconds of footage that somebody shot for 13 hours that day. And he goes through that 13 hours of footage and sees what else wasn't captured, what else hasn't been marked as highlighted. And he finds the most fascinating footage of really important events and really important people doing really important things that were critical to how our culture and the, the global society has come to this point. He pinpoints those and then weaves a story of comparing, like, Gaddafi and um, social media in America. And he just weaves together these absolutely fascinating stories using this archival footage of the real-time things, and we love him. So, yeah, I'd recommend everybody Google Adam Curtis and start watching his stuff because it's so interesting and even if you don't agree with his ideas or his political sort of concepts the the storytelling is so masterful that it really shouldn't matter cool he's certainly not somebody i'm familiar with but i'm i've, I've got a lot of work to do i'm going to seek out his films just like everybody cool. should seek out your film as well <laughs> thanks yeah. so much again so, we are playing at a melbourne dark fest yeah, yeah, it's and there's a great lineup of documentaries, which you know, it's great to see yours, yours amongst it, which is fantastic. Um, look, Joanna and Cameron, I've taken up too much of your time. I really appreciate it, and and everybody, please go and go and see the Gateway Bug. It's it's fantastic. Thank you so much. No worries. You guys have a great Memorial Day as well. Enjoy New York on <laughs> on a nice day, hopefully. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to this interview with Joanna and Cameron, uh, director and producer of The Gateway Bug. As it sounds like, it's it's a really great film, so I highly recommend seeking it out. Uh, It's screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on 16th of July at 3pm. I'll put all the links in the show notes. I do highly recommend purchasing tickets in advance to make sure, because I have a feeling this is one of the, the films at the festival that will sell out. It's really good, really entertaining, a lot of fun. To hear more of these kinds of interviews, make sure to head over to our website, which is abfilmreview.com. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Last New Wave as well. Or also, alternatively as well, if you like these kinds of interviews and you like to hear other voices other than mine, um, head over to followingfilms.com, which is a, a basically a film discussion network that I'm part of. And you can listen to the Following Films podcast, which is uh, hosted by Chris Maynard does a lot of interviews on that really really fantastic show one of the the shows i highly recommend listening to as well as other shows like uh 
War Machine vs. Warhorse, who the host Michael Denniston I've had previously on this show, and Pop Culture Case Study as well, who I've previously had the host Dave Hart as well. Um, so I highly recommend going to that website, followingfilms.com, check out the other shows on there. Um, and of course, I should also mention to head over to thegatewaybug.com to find out more information about the film and keep a track of, of when it becomes available for, for other places other than just uh, film festivals as well. That's enough from me. Thanks again for listening. And, of course, continue watching Australian cinema. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next episode of The Last New Wave. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.